You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 95 of the Apple Insider Podcast. Joining me is Daniel Aaron Dilger. Hi, from San Francisco. Oh, no, actually, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in San Francisco. I'm in Los Angeles. All right. Well, one of those, right? They're, they're separated by a short plane ride. A vast... A vast chasm as well. <laughs> that too. Um, I'd like to begin by doing a quick ad read and then we'll get right down to it. So we all use our Macs differently, but one feature that's common to all of our Macs is the system volume. Most of us often feel that we need to have a little bit more when it comes to the system volume, and Boom 2, a volume enhancement app by Global Delight, does exactly that. So log on to Boom4Mac, that's B-O-O-M-F-O-R-M-A-C dot com. The app comes with a trial period of seven days, during which you can use the entire app, including the amazing audio effects. And once you're convinced, you can buy it from Boom4Mac.com. So don't keep your ears waiting, and log on to Boom4Mac.com now. So Dan, you got... A shiny new MacBook Pro with a touch bar. Yeah, it was the 15-inch with the uh, space gray color. So it was new in a couple of respects. Also had the touch bar, of course. And this is this is a review unit that Apple sent to you. Is that correct? Well, right, right. So what what's you've had it for nominally almost a week now, right? What's your experience like, Ben? Uh, it's super thin. I'm used to a MacBook Air. <clears throat> I have I have a Mac I have an older MacBook Pro as well. It's one of the old 17s, uh, but I, I use the MacBook Air because it's so much lighter and easier to carry. And okay, so which which MacBook Air have you got? Well, it's also not that new. <laughs> no, but, but is it like a 2014 13 inch or what? No, it's like a 2011. So you you've been using the 13 inch MacBook Air, and you've now gone to the 15 inch MacBook with the Touch Bar that Apple loaned you, and and what are the differences besides the fact that it's a little bit physically wider? So it's only nominally larger. It's like maybe a, you know, less than an inch uh, taller and deeper. Uh, but the screen is so much larger and that's because the margins around the screen are so much smaller. So, so the screen frame is, is much thinner. Right. And so you have a big, beautiful screen and it has Apple's, uh, new support for wide color, which shows more colors, especially in, in vivid uh, reds and um, reds and oranges and greens, I think. It's kind of where it pops out. It was a specification developed for digital cinema to show more of the colors that you can see with your eye as opposed to the standard RGB uh, gamut that computers have been using for a while, quite a while now. And uh, so they introduced it on the Mac or the iPad iPad Pro this summer, and then they put it on the iPhone 7, and now it's on the MacBooks. And so it gives you, it's the kind of thing that if you look at it, it doesn't, you may not notice it immediately, but if you go back, you realize, oh wow, this is much nicer. So it's kind of like Retina display for color instead of resolution. You're seeing a lot more of what there is on the screen. So your the pictures you take with your phone are, are going to be one of the biggest things. But uh, a lot of content is also going to be coming out in, in this uh, specification for P3 because uh, it was designed for movies. It was designed to show. And televisions are, are also promoting this. Uh, the, the latest crop of televisions is doing high dynamic range and wide color is kind of their primary feature set. 
or the, the new thing to be offering. So you have this big, beautiful display. You have uh, the new keyboard and a huge trackpad. The keyboard is is a evolved version of what they came on the what they put on the Retina uh, MacBook last year, last summer, I guess. That a lot of people had a little bit of an aversion to. It was a little harder to type on because the keys are super flat and super thin, and they don't go in very far. And how it was enhanced is it feels like the the key shape has more of an indentation on it. So when you type, it it feels more natural. And when I first start typing, I mean, anytime you start typing on a new keyboard, it feels foreign. But I rapidly decided I I liked it. The thing. The thing that's different that I'm not sure what I think about is it's a little noisier. I was about to ask about that. I mean, it has more of a clicky sound. So when you're typing, it's just like clickety, clickety. Whereas on the, comparing it to a MacBook Air, the keycap seemed to be a little more muted. It isn't silent, but it has a kind of a softer sound to it. So I noticed that. I don't know what I really think about that. But um, another difference is the backlighting is more accurate. So instead of having kind of light leakage around the keys... And the feature that Apple really promoted when they when they describe it is that what they call a butterfly mechanism underneath, basically the, uh, I don't know how you describe it, the strut that holds the key. The butterfly mechanism is how that used to be called. Right. I mean, this is, this is a butterfly mechanism now, and they refer to the previous generation as something else, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. But it's a different design in how they call it a scissor before, I think. Yeah, it was it was sort of a scissor, but it was an X kind of frame if you looked at it from the side of things. So it's a little bit more sophisticated design. It allows the keyboard to be thinner so that the key doesn't travel as far, but it's still accurate. And the difference between the Air in particular, because the Air was also designed to be thin when it came out. Um, how many years ago has that been? 2008? Mm-hmm. Uh, the latest keyboards are getting thinner and thinner. And to do that, uh, they developed this new mechanism uh, for each key that holds it. And the end result is is that the key doesn't jiggle around as much. So when you're typing, it doesn't feel like you're typing on like whack-a-mole or something where, where the keys are kind of jiggling around. It feels a lot more precise. And the similar kind of um, the similar kind of feel with the trackpad, one of the reasons why it's so huge is because they've taken away the physical constraints of being an actual button where you press it down and it has to have kind of a hinge on one side and press it down on the trailing edge. Now the entire thing is sort of a virtual button, so it responds to pressure. So it's much more like the iPhone 7 home button, where when you push it, it's not really going down, but um, it feels like it is because there's a vibration underneath it. So that that new design, which they, they first introduced on the last generation of MacBooks, uh, that was originally introduced with the case design that was built for a physical button trackpad so the first generation of uh, force touch trackpad was smaller to fit into the case that it was already designed for this new case has been totally redesigned the shell of the, the machine right and so they they went wild and put in an enormous trackpad which just gives you a lot more room to maneuver around on um, is it I, weird to use with that gigantic trackpad i didn't see any problem with using it um does a pretty good job of ignoring your hands. I mean, I've never, I never noticed that there was a problem with typing and having the cursor like reposition itself. Um, I do notice, uh, I'm not as familiar with using the track, the force touch trackpad. It seems like when I'm clicking, I am more likely to double click on 
you know, do a contextual click inadvertently. But that's probably just because my fat hands, I'm laying down two next to each other. Mm -hmm. I find that on my my um, 2015 MacBook Pro with with the Force Touch trackpad, that I occasionally get weird palm rejection failures and my cursor repositions on me when I'm typing. So it's it's interesting to hear that you haven't had that problem with the even bigger trackpad. Yeah, it didn't seem to be an issue that I noticed. And I haven't seen other people complaining about that, so I don't know. That's... So we haven't really talked about the touch bar yet. So the touch, What's your experience? Yeah, the touch, touch bar bars. replaces the top of the keyboard, and uh, it makes it dynamic so that it can be done, it can portray anything. So that's a little bit like iOS in general, um, and it's a little like the computer in general. One of the things that Steve Jobs said that I kind of I keep thinking about is one of the one of the kind of core things that Apple invented is if you have a bitmap screen, you can make it appear to do anything. You know, you can have buttons on the screen, you can have windowing controls. All these things are fake. You know, they're, they're an artist's conception of reality that doesn't exist. And it allows you to create a metaphor for working on things that you don't have to be a computer aligned person to understand. Once, once you get this very consistent uh, desktop, it makes sense how to manipulate things on the screen, even though what you're doing doesn't, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fabrication. And with iOS devices, they took over the entire screen. They, they threw out all the controls, all the buttons, all the keyboards virtually, except for one home button, and made the entire device basically into a shell for a screen that could be bitmapped into whatever you want it to be. And they came up with a very clear platform and design for how to lay things out. And if you compare it with other platforms of the day that were kind of doing similar things, Apple did a much better job, and that's why everyone's copying Apple now. There were a lot of efforts to, to put, you know, big screens on phones, but uh, the way they implemented it was just sloppy and it didn't look good. I mean, look at the first Android things. They were just all ugly, and even what was on the screen was ugly. And Apple did a really good job of presenting it and spacing things on the screen, knowing how to how big to make targets so they made sense for your fingers, which was different than the previous generation of using a pointer and a trackpad or a mouse. Uh, and so that's kind of reflected in the design of the touch bar. It's basically the the width of a function key, which is maybe 80% the size of the rest of your keys on the keyboard. So it's this narrow strip, and it isn't overlaid, it isn't, you can do a lot of things with it, but they have kind of guidelines that say, don't just go nuts with it, do it like this. You know, have buttons that look like this. Don't go too crazy with graphics. Don't have... Um, things moving around that aren't necessary. If you, it's kind of interesting to read the macOS guidelines for the track bar or the, for the touch bar because um, they really outline in quite interesting detail how they designed for this to work. And the actual design for it actually makes sense even if you're using applications that don't make specific use of it. So it has control strip buttons that do kind of the normal things that a, a function key would do if you held down uh, the alternative key. So things like expose buttons and media control and changing the volume and other things. There's a specific button for invoking Siri. And a, a number of people that have reviewed it, Joanna Stern for the Wall Street Journal, and there was a, a series of reviews, and they all seem to say the very same thing. That was, I don't get the touch bar because I can, you know, I know the key, the key combination for making something bold is command B, and it doesn't help that I have a button on, on the track bar that does the same thing. 
it's like, well, yeah, there's a lot of things in Mac OS. Yeah, but that's not for you then, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot of reasons why you would want to have duplicative ways to do things in the user interface. Multiple entry points. Yeah. So you can use a keyboard, you can use a mouse. Um, and here, the track, the, the touch bar, I keep saying it wrong, offers an, an alternative way to do it that um, is not going to replace the things you're familiar with, but what it's going to replace are things you're not familiar with. And there's a lot of key commands in an application that you're not going to know, and you're not even going to wear as an option. But if it presents it, then it is. And there's a lot of things, even in just basic applications. For example, you know, like Activity Monitor, when you have the app open, you have a bunch of buttons there that allow you to jump between the pages of the app that, you know, you can also put your finger on the mouse and go over and click to it, but having the buttons right there is like, boom, you can just jump to it. Same thing with Maps. That was like one of the more colorful versions of it that you can do a search and you can search a specific kind of type of thing and get results right away. Um, some of the other applications, even like, like I noticed doing, you open up Grab to do a screenshot or you do the uh, command, what is it, Command-Shift-4 to do a screenshot and immediately it shows up uh, without even launching the Grab app. It gives you buttons to do a selected portion, a window, an entire screen. Those are also things that if you're familiar with doing screenshots, you probably yeah, know. Yeah, if you, you know that Command-Shift-4 spacebar right. and then click gets you to select a window to screenshot, right? But no one, no one but you and I know that stuff, right? Well, if you do that a lot, then yeah. But if it's something that you occasionally do, then having sort of a cheat sheet that just pops up and is constantly offering you options is good. And then in addition, there's a lot of times when you're thinking, how do I make it put the screenshot in a specific place that I want? Well, right there on the, on the touch bar is an option to save it to the desktop or documents or just save it to the clipboard or open up preview. So there's a lot of... Uh, functionality that's exposed in a way that um, it's not trying to replace your memory of doing a specific keyboard combination. But once you do a keyboard combination, you can have a bunch of options displayed. So it's kind of like an attribute that you're typing on the end of it. So there's a, there's a, a number of different ways that the touch bar is useful. And it's also just kind of fun. You know, sometimes you're in an app and you can just kind of navigate through that. Another thing, of course, uh, one of the promoter features of it is a quick type type uh, word suggestion that in macOS, when you're typing, it will commonly suggest the most common word it thinks you're going to try to type. And when you hit the space bar, it just completes it for you. Well, sometimes there's two things that two or three things that it might be. And with that extra screen real estate of the, of the touch bar, it can give you three different options and say, here's the suggested one, which shows up in blue. So if you hit the space bar, that's what you're going to get. But you may also be thinking of this word or that word. So it's again, it's like a incremental um, run on the, the feature that already exists. And of course, also for emojis, typing emojis on in macOS is more complicated because you have to bring up a browser or the little panel and search for something. But when they're just visually all there, it's quite easy to just click something. Yeah, I've already seen pictures of people's screens where they've they've opened up text edit and made the 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 font size as large as possible and then just started typing emojis. Like filling the screen with emojis. Yeah, so there's uh, that's just even basic apps. And then what you know what Apple really positioned this as on the MacBook Pro was to be a time-saving sort of input device for people using something like Final Cut Pro or using Adobe Photoshop or some of these other apps that 
have a lot of functionality that that already kind of takes over the screen. There's a lot of options, but uh, allowing you to do hands-on controls. And I haven't worked with either of those two apps yet, but working with some of Apple's creative apps, for example, Photos, you can do selection and um, edits right within the touch bar. And what's nice about it, even though you can also do that, the same kind of adjustments on the screen, is that it visual, the, the visual layout of the adjustments on, on the touch bar are more akin to iOS. So it's, you're directly manipulating sliders and things like that. So you, you get a sense, you also get feedback of what, what it's going to look like on the screen, like what direction it's going to go in. So there's a lot of applications like that that are sort of interesting and waiting to be fully fleshed out. Um, another thing that is kind of an obvious benefit is would be gaming. There's a lot of games where you have you know, a toolbar of things that take up uh, the screen. If you have that on the toolbar, that'd be also be pretty cool. And it's also especially uh, sort of a benefit to when you're working in full screen in a creative app. So you can show more of your content on the screen without having you know a bunch of palettes and menus and things. Did you hear that? I heard the name. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little deaf still. I thought quitting messages would stop that from happening, but... Oh, no. Let me, uh, no, you have to use Do Not Disturb in the upper right-hand corner of your notification. I do not see Do Not Disturb. If So here's how you find... This is our tip for our listeners of oh, the day. Here it if is. you click in the upper right-hand corner of your screen <laughs> and then scroll, pull it down, Do Not Disturb is an option with the on-off button right up there. I hope you edit all that out. <laughs> okay, so now it's not... A- I'll just teach our listeners. It's fine, man. We can do that. Okay. Nothing wrong with telling people how to make their laptop be quiet when they need it. Okay, well, I forgot where I was going, but... Well, you were telling me about the touch bar and how you haven't had the chance to use it in a lot of the pro apps yet. You've used it in photos and how those those controls feel very natural because they're they're sort of using that touch bar and touch screen like you would in iOS. Right. So I kind of finished that idea, didn't I? Anything else you want to talk about? Well, so sum it up for me. Uh, what do you think of the touch bar in the MacBook Pro? Because that's kind of the crowning feature of of this Mac. I mean, yes, it's got the USB Type C Thunderbolt three ports, but it. But what is what is? Well, physically, the most distinctive thing about the new MacBook Pro is yeah. this touch bar, and it's interesting for a number of reasons. One is that it uses a lot of technology that Apple's working on in other directions. It's basically. Um, it's close to being a self-contained iOS device. I mean, basically it is. It, it is a iOS device. It's processor. It's got its own uh, secure element for Touch ID, for purchasing, and for unlocking the computer and stuff like that. So, yeah. Apparently, also, the camera is integrated into that whole subsystem and then layered onto the Macintosh. So, it looks like it's the same thing, but it's actually a computer that acts as a peripheral that connects via USB to the, the Mac. So it is possible for it to, to work while the Mac is booted into another operating system if there is support for it. But um, what I find interesting about that is that Apple has put a lot of effort into developing, obviously, iOS and uh, the ARM processors that it uses for iPads and iPhone. And then it further distilled that down to the system on a chip used by Apple Watch. And... This subsystem is similar to Apple Watch and how that how it boots from a RAM disk. And that it is such a small device that uh, basically acts as a secondary 
uh, screen with in- input for your iPhone. I mean, Apple Watch is more independent and in that it can do things by itself. But essentially, it's kind of like a second screen for your primary mobile computer that's in your pocket. And so the touch bar is kind of an interesting readaptation of that technology using not just a similar processor, but also a similar uh, security system so that when you use touch bar, when you enroll your fingerprints and the fingerprints of other people, it uh, does the same, follows the same security for preventing that from being something that anybody who attacks the system can just get that fingerprint information off of from you. Um, so there's a lot of thought that went into developing this. And one of the things that I was saying is that even if you don't have a lot of applications that make specific use of it, it's still useful. And uh, I think the the uses of, because it's a completely dynamic system, the the interface that's presented there can change and be updated. So Apple can keep evolving the display in, in uses that are the touch touch bar display in ways that are increasingly useful. Right. And in, in years past, we had a dashboard button on the computer alongside some of the other kinds of buttons. And then that dashboard button went away over time as Apple decided to, to uh, deprecate dashboard. Here, because it's all graphical, because it's all um, malleable, they can just change the buttons at will with software updates. Right. And you can actually even change the layout of, of the buttons in a lot of the apps you use by going to the view menu. And it's, it's very similar to adjusting the toolbar. Right. You know, most Mac OS apps have a toolbar with that. You can go in and edit and change the layout and also which buttons you put in the toolbar on the top of your window. And so the editing of the touch bar is very similar where you get a, an option for all kinds of different buttons. Of course, I've had a couple people ask this. The buttons that are available for you to customize have to be uh, part of I mean, The developer has to enable that in the application. So it's not like you can just create your own buttons and have them work. Yet. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's actually, that'd be an interesting idea for a third-party application, creating buttons that were launchers for other things. And you could do that. So the Apple Touch Bar MacBook Pro I want to let everyone know is available for in-store pickup. That's limited stock, but there are are several stores, not all of them, that have the MacBook Pro with Touch Bar available today. It's not consistent, and many stores are expected to have stock on hand December thirtieth. But you know, you you can imagine that major metropolitan areas like New York and California have units, and so use the um, use the Apple Store app and use Apple's online system on their website and you may be able to find where you need to get one uh, where you can go to get one if you need one in person so dan you you had you've had pretty much every iphone along the way haven't you yes (laughs) and i recall you had an iphone 6 plus that didn't exactly act right i had some problems with the 6 plus but i didn't have the that right yeah the first generation yeah um so it didn't there, have the specific problem that, that people are, are reporting with. So let's talk about what that problem is. Um, they're, they're calling this touch disease is the, the name for it that people have given it. And basically that there are some devices that exhibit screen flicker and have, have multi-touch issues. And Apple has determined that these issues come after being dropped on a hard surface. 
and that it sometimes exhibits as a thin gray flickering blank band at the top of the screen or, or it extends further down and that it impacts touch response. And, uh, you know, we, we did some surveying and we did some, some looking into this and we found that iPhone six and six plus, uh, problems accounted for roughly 11% of an Apple store's daily iPhone service volume. And, so now Apple has come up with a program. They've got a special program where they're going to uh, fix these issues for a flat $149 service fee. Which is similar to replacing the screen, right? <clears throat> if you get your screen cracked, it costs about, it's a little bit less than that. It's like 129 or something like that. Right. That's just for the, the uh, display glass, or does, does that include the digitizer and everything? Uh, well, what what they're replacing here looks to be well, it's unclear because there's a, a touch controller chip that is on the logic board. There's, uh, you know, a couple of parts that that could be impacted here. But what's what's nice to see is that people who may be even be out of warranty are able to get this taken care of. And in comparison, people, you know, we we talk a lot about iPhones needing to be have the screen replaced or other other repairs like this. Um, same thing occurs to other smartphones, but in many cases, because there's so much fractionalization, even if you have a high-volume device like a Samsung, uh, the, the people that I've seen that have had their phones re- replaced, it's fantastically more expensive because there's not 20 million people that have the same phone as you. Or well, it's, it's also it's a lot more difficult to get the company to go along with it or to, to even just deal with it, right? Um <clears throat> You know, my my father has a Lenovo device. No, he has a Motorola device, which is yes, effectively a Lenovo device. And uh, he, he was having trouble with it, and he called them up, and they admitted that this was a problem with the device, and that it needed to be replaced, and that they would replace it. Um, and they expected to be without a phone for two weeks while they got around to shipping it to him. And he asked them to expedite it, and they said they would happily expedite it um, if he would pay the the you know inflated shipping cost to expedite it. And he, he made the point to them while he was on the phone. You know, you realize there's an Apple store less than a mile from my house. And uh, it, it made no difference because he was stuck with their device and it was going to be slower or, or expensive to get it. Here, Apple, you know, good for them, are not only handling this in a way that is, is yes, it costs consumers, but you do get a fixed device. Uh, people who have paid for repairs at other service providers can apply for reimbursement through Apple. The other thing is this appears to be uh, unique to the, the original six models. The, the six plus uh, versions from last year have a kind of more stronger rigid body design. And well, that the wait, wait a second. Let me ask because the, the six S and six S plus benefited from the more rigid design. That's what I mean. I wasn't aware that that, that, also was implemented on the six I, and six I plus. I guess I didn't say it right. I'm, I'm talking about the six and six plus versus the six S and six S plus. Right. Yeah. So the S no, models that were the, the year after these models that we're talking about benefited from the stronger case. But I think the problems with the original six models are because they're now getting to as old as they are. I mean, they're now on their third year, right? Hey, hey, I've got one of those. They've been being dropped, and, and so the, the problem is trying to show up more. So it's not just because they're old, but it's, it's a combination of being old and also a, a design that's, that's less capable of being dropped and surviving than the 6S and the 7. 
But the other thing is that, that because it's now over two years old, a lot of people are going to be migrating away from it. They're you know they're upgrading to a newer, newer phone. Where if your phone was only a year old and this was happening to it, that would be a little different situation if you had to pay to repair a phone that was within your contract still. Yeah. But iPhones and generally Apple stuff in general is expected to last longer than than other company stuff. Part you know it's more expensive. You, you have well, an ex- expectation that's going to have a longer life, and that Apple's also going to support have- longer. We we also have that expectation because the software support is so much longer. Right. Now we've we've been talking in the past about wireless headphones. We've talked about the the earpods. We've talked about the uh, the Powerbeats three, and we've got a report from B and H, who is a good friend of of Apple Insider, that the Apple Beats X earbuds, which have the W one wireless chip, are going to go on sale December sixteenth. Uh, a listing on B&H's website was pointed out by one of our readers, a, a fellow named Bryce. Uh, Apple hasn't given any release date officially, but except that they were going to ship sometime before Christmas. But uh, B&H has a listing on their website that says expected availability December 16th for online ordering. Um, the Beats X headphones are, are essentially two earbuds, you know, a left and a right, uh, connected by a, a cable that goes behind the ears kind of thing goes around the neck with the mic and, and controls on one of the lines. The power beats three, so, is that already out? That's uh, power beats three and solo wireless are shipping. Solo three wireless are shipping. AirPods have been delayed and, and beats X is coming. I think it was just an update saying that, that when the uh, AirPods were coming out, uh it's it's there's a french retailer is claiming a november 30th ship date so they're on the on course to be like a month late but you know it's well if if we believe that uh fnac which is the the french retailer um has the accurate information it's entirely possible they do i mean fnac's not a small thing but yeah they're like the french best buy pretty much yeah but yeah, it was originally a late October ship date, and now we're talking November thirtieth. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, iPhone rumors. So the two thousand seventeen iPhone. You know, we've talked in the past about how it's going to be thinner than ever. The screen size is going to be big. It's going to be curved. It's going to have an OLED. All these magical things, right? Uh, the latest is another Ming-Chi Kuo of KGI Securities note that says that it's going to have either a 5.1 or a 5.2-inch display and that it'll be released alongside iPhone models with the traditional 4.7 and 5.5 inches. So you know, what, what's, what's your thought on this kind of thing? What's your thought on, on this 2017 model? Well, the, the depiction... The idea of a third size. The depictions that I've seen of it is basically that it's removing the the margin entirely and of the front bezel <clears throat> and also the home button. So it's taking a larger screen and presumably putting it on a phone that's not much bigger than the 4.7, the, the standard iPhone 7. But taking advantage of not having a chin or a forehead to, to get the larger screen size, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. And it, it's becoming... We have some examples. I mean, we have we have good reason to believe that the touch ID can be integrated into a screen or behind a screen without needing to be a physical button. Uh, although um, 
you know, if you look at the how how it is on the iPhone Seven now, it's a it's a it's like a synthetic button with a the actuator behind it that makes it feel like a button. Um, I'm trying to think how that would feel through a screen. Well, the the thing that's implemented on the iPhone Seven is that it has the conductive ring, so that your your capacitance says I'm trying to activate Touch ID. Right, and I'm not sure if that's necessary. I mean. I don't know if that would be necessary to be visible because you know on the on the new MacBook Pro, Touch ID is behind. There's a there's a ring and behind the the I believe it's sapphire cover, so it just looks like a piece of screen. I don't know how what limitations there would be on having a layer of display or um, multi touch built into that. I guess that would make sense. But, okay. So that's one thing, and the other thing is, of course, you know, you have the existing front facing camera and the microphone. And on the iPhone 7, that microphone is also being used, or the, the earpiece is being used as a, one of the two speakers for stereo sound. So that's also stuff that you're going to have on the face of the, the phone, presumably, that yeah. I suppose you could vent around it or something. But So one of the, the things about these rumors is that we're talking about a switch to a glass casing instead of metal. Right. Which is is going to be interesting when it comes to droppage and and things like we were talking about with the iPhone six. Yeah, glass glass and all kinds of ceramics are generally uh, they're strong, but they can also be brittle. I suppose there's ways you could work around that. I mean, one of Apple's big things now is that they're just like working with kind of incredible precision in terms of, of you know of new components, and they're experimenting a lot with different things. You know, the new watch that's ceramic, and ceramic and glass are very similar types of materials that can do more than what, you know, we think of glass as being sort of like um, what drinking glasses are made out of. But there's a lot of things where glass is doing things that uh, you can't do with other materials. And one of the most obvious things is you can have uh, radio signals going through it, like on the, and not just radio signals, but also power induction. So on the on the Apple Watch, the body is metal. The face, of course, is a display. It's glass or ceramic. But the back of the watch has a ceramic circle that you tap that thing on and electricity can go through it. So those are all kind of pluses to having a composite or, or glass of some kind case. Um, the downside is, of course, that glass and composite are generally as heavy as metal, as heavy as steel. And so yeah. if you replaced your, your, body your phone as, doubles in weight, basically. Right. I mean, if, if you replace the current design as we know it, but they may be able to do things that, you know, do not follow the the common design of the iPhone six seven type shape. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that we talk about is is that the optical image stabilization in both camera lenses across the the 2017 line is is going to be there, right? iPhones are going to have optical image stage optical image stabilization in all the camera lenses in 2017. And which is uh, a really nice feature. It's it's quite impressive too. I mean, I there are a number of times where I've taken pictures. Or videos in particular, uh, especially when you're using the new Z- the zoom lens on the iPhone Seven Plus, and I'm holding the camera, and you know, especially when you're zooming, it just looks like you're bouncing all over the place. But when I looked at the video that I took, it actually did a remarkable job of smoothing it out. It's like a Steadicam, so that's a really nice feature to have. And it, it, uh, one of the ideas that keeps coming back to me is this idea. You know, if you ask people what they wanted before the car, they would have asked for faster horses. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that people were asking for when Apple was coming out with better cameras in the iPhone 5 series 
was, oh no, this can't have a rim. You know, this can't have an edge. It's kind of a bulge. It's so ugly that there's a, you know, a bulge around the camera lens. And to me, that just seemed like the stupidest thing in the world. Like really, your, your priority is that there's not a ring on the back of the camera. You, you want it. You want a phone that can well, be laid on the ground. They had one of those yeah, pure view cameras, right? Where the whole back bulged out for the thing. Yeah, but at least those cameras <laughs> had a, offered some significant feature. You know, they have a better lens. Sometimes it was too much lens. But the fact that Apple had this little tiny rim on the iPhone 5 and people were just freaking out about how ugly it was. I don't really remember oh, the, the rim was, on the iPhone 5. I think the 6 thing. was the one. I'm sorry, the not the 5. Day. I mean the... Was that right? 6. Six with the 6S? Was the 6S had a rim? 6... six. Six and six S both have the camera. Maybe it was the six. It, you know, five tiny, is this tiny little rim, but it had much better pictures because of that, and it was also thinner. Yeah. And you know, if if you have a checklist of things that are important and things that are not important, it's like being thin is useful. Being you know able to take nice pictures is kind of you know an important feature. Complaining about the fact that there's like this tiny rim around the lens. I mean. Well, well, and you know that the designers didn't really ridiculous. want to do that. If had had they had the choice, could they have included? It's like you know, had they been able to fenders on a car, it's like well, not things. necessarily, but you know, if you have, if that's kind of like core to your design, that's kind of important or, or required in order to accomplish the other things you're setting out to do. Yeah, I mean, if you could have the same kind of quality in a camera without you know having it perfectly flat on the back, it's like okay, that's great, but of it's kind of not hard to understand why that that's not possible on a, on a larger lens. And of course the larger you can make it. But anyway, the, when the iPhone seven came out, you know, people were talking about this, Oh, we'll have a bulge, you know, Apple showed off the bulge, all their promotional pictures. They make it look like it's this beautiful rim. Yeah. And that's kind of the point. It's like, you know what? All this complaining you're doing was ridiculous. Here's what you can do with a little bit of a rim. You can have two camera lenses. You can have one of them have a 2x lens was just actually pretty useful in a camera. Um, I, I would kind of like to see what what they could do with replaceable lenses, but um, I think what they're doing right now with the fixed the two fixed lenses, replaceable lenses seems like it would compromise the waterproof or water resistance that they're going for. We right could now. have a mount on it. That there were there were some right. patent applications that involved like a bayonet mount. We could slip it on. I mean, part of the problem with the the external lenses that exist right now is that there's no elegant way of attaching them to the phone without having sort of like a clamp over the top. Well, the clamp ones aren't that great. The ones that, that use some kind of case of their own or the, um, the ones that clip without being like spring loaded yeah. tend to be okay. The, uh, the Zeiss Exo lens are, are one of the better ones for that. <clears throat> or using something like the, uh, the beast grip where you can then put, you know, Canon or Nikon 35 millimeter lenses on top of it get to be pretty good. Uh, but what's interesting for me is that by 2018, KGI seems to think that, that 80 to 85% of the iPhone users will have dual lens technology. So that, that basically in the 2018 phone, we're going to have the dual lens across the line. That seems plausible. If you look at a lot of things that Apple's done, uh, they introduced a new feature for the top line. That's kind of expensive. Like touch ID was expensive. And every other phone maker, you know, other phone makers could have gone to Authentic and got parts, and some of them did, but they shied away from it because this is too expensive technology to use. Plus, we're going to have to develop a bunch of other stuff to use it, you know, and have it work well. Apple invested a ton of money into figuring out how to put it behind a, a lens so that it wouldn't wear out from your constant finger touching it. And 
a lot of other things, you know, a whole security architecture for how to protect your fingerprint once you scan it in there. Um, after they did all that work, they used it to sell the iPhone 5S. And it sold in big quantities because of that. I mean, Touch ID was an attractive feature. People started figuring out, you know, hey, if you can, with this little reader on your phone, you can have the passcode on it all the time. And it's not a big deal to put in your password all the time with your fingerprint. So it actually was a great thing for a lot of people. And then now it's pretty much every iPhone and almost all the iPod, iPads, except for like the, the Mini 2, they're still selling. It doesn't have one. But um, it's a ubiquitous feature. And now we're seeing it kind of creep onto Macs. I think that's going to uh, move around. Also with the touch bar, I think like if you look at the way that Apple designed it, it's modular enough to where they could integrate it into external keyboards and a lot of other form factors. So I think that's another example of investing a lot in a new technology to sell something and then making it you know, trickle down to become a common technology for everything. And the same thing with cameras. I mean, remember when iPads just had terrible cameras and the iPhone had sort of an okay camera and how much effort they put into making the latest iPhone camera much better over the previous generation for year after year after year, especially since 2004, iPhone 4. And now even an iPad has a pretty good camera. The only thing that doesn't have a very good camera is a Max. <laughs> and part of that is because the bezel is so so thin. Well, and also that's partly the use, right? No one holds their laptop up to try and take pictures of right, you're not taking subjects. Right. You're, you're trying to video conference, basically. And you're probably not taking a lot of selfies with it either. But another thing that's interesting, we're talking about the touch bar and touch ID. The camera appears to be integrated into that same security system that's, that's managed by the T1. Yeah, you said that. And so it'll be interesting to see what kind of application or why that's the case. Uh, it could be partly just due to that's a common thing in, in companies. You want to secure your devices and turn the camera off. Well, so there's, there's been a ton of malware and also a ton of, of uh, misused or malused um, adminware right. that allows people to turn on the webcam surreptitiously. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and for a while people were putting post-it notes over their camera lenses or black masking tape or things like this to try and cut down on, uh, you know, pr- photos being taken when people weren't aware that photos were being taken, right? right? Because that's, that's um, uncomfortable and invasive and, and you know, problematic. Um, and, and so by running it through its own processor and its own secure element, its own, that, own, that separate chain, perhaps they can cut down on uh, it being triggered surreptitiously. Another thing I was thinking about, um, this whole thing that all these kids are doing with face or uh, Snapchat, every, every profile picture of a kid under 25 now has that stupid dog face <laughs> that's from Snapchat on their face. <clears throat> and uh, that was something that act- actually Apple was doing 10 years ago with, with Photobooth is doing facial recognition and you could have, you know, like the, the halo of birds circling your head or the, the hearts or something like that, or it would change your eyes or the, uh, little, right. It was all done in uh quartz composer, which Apple doesn't seem to be very interested in anymore, but um, we're going to talk about that a little bit okay. after a couple more stories. I'll, I'll hold on to it then. Hold hold on to Quartz Composer because I want to get to that when we talk about things Apple isn't interested in any longer. Um, I was going to quickly go through 
the idea that Apple is automatically uploading all of your iPhone call logs to iCloud. So there's there's a Russian security firm called Elcomsoft. And Elcomsoft told Forbes that the uploads happen in almost real time, although occasionally they're delayed a few hours, and that basically um, it logs phone calls and FaceTime calls, FaceTime audio, FaceTime video calls, uh, even if you don't have iCloud backup enabled. It's, it's doing it as long as you're using iCloud Drive at all. And you can stop the uploads from happening by disabling iCloud Drive, but that cuts out all the other features that you're trying to take advantage of. So some people are suggesting that this is a security flaw. Some people are suggesting this is an oversight. Um, the, you know, there, there are legitimate needs for them to be able to sync some of that data, but it's not encrypted. It's, it's just stored in your iCloud and secured by whatever your password is at this time. It's kind of surprising that there's some things that are uh, being synced to iCloud that aren't encrypted that you think that you kind of think that they should be. Um, but, you know, in general, the whole, the whole point of syncing your call logs is not to create a detailed record on you, but it's so that you have the same history on every You want your call logs device, across devices, right? right? Yeah, right. so it's a feature. So, I mean, that's something that, that's something that needs some attention, but it's kind of, the, the coverage I saw, it was kind of like, oh, man, what is Apple doing this for? It's like, well, duh. I, I would be happy if it were encrypted. I, I understand synchronizing, but it's not such a heavy amount of data that couldn't be encrypted. Right. You know, it's not like gigs and gigs that encrypting and decrypting would be annoying. It's it's like small small pieces of data that could easily be encrypted. Yeah, and I wonder how much it's not just the overhead of doing the encryption one time, but it's also I, I'm not a an expert in databases and how they work, but if you're storing a bunch of information and you're trying to sync it and it's all encrypted, then you're having to do it in much bigger blobs than if you're able to just say, Oh, this bit has changed or you know, here's Here's one little bit of information that's changed. We'll send that out by itself. If um, if everything's sort of encrypted in batches or in one huge big uh, bunch of data, then that makes it more difficult to, to sync a lot of small changes and things like that. But well, I, I would think you know, and I'm I'm just speaking hypothetically. Also, the other way to do it would be to you know, if if the whole call log is less than a megabyte, then you encrypt the whole thing and send the whole blob. And then when you decrypt it at the device, you do the diff there and update the one bit that's changed. Yeah, I mean, but I don't know. It depends on how much, I don't know exactly how what it would involve and how much data you're having to send. But Anyway, the, the Apple statement from an Apple spokesman was, we, we offer call history syncing as convenience to our customers so they can return calls from any of their devices. Apple's deeply committed to safeguarding our customers' data, and that's why we give our customers the ability to keep their data private. Device data is encrypted using a user's passcode, and access to iCloud data, including backups, requires the user's Apple ID and password. Apple recommends all you customers select strong passwords and use two-factor authentication. So that was their answer to this, which which doesn't really answer why it isn't encrypted, but it certainly is, you know, a nice answer. So if that information was asked for by law enforcement, would they be able to access it without account oh, totally. password? Um, yeah. Yeah, that information would totally be accessible to law enforcement. Yeah, but what? why is Apple's statement saying that it's, uh, has a password and account attached to it if it's not encrypted? Uh, device data is encrypted with the user's passcode. Separately, access to iCloud data, including backups, requires the user's Apple ID and password. But they... Um, 
you know, they, they showed with the San Bernardino thing a year ago that they were able to access the iCloud data and hand that over to law enforcement. It was the on-device data that was encrypted that they couldn't undo. Right. But there is some data on iCloud that is encrypted. Uh, I would say that is device data itself, but not the call logs. Right. I mean, I'm just thinking like your, your keychain is put on iCloud. It's also encrypted to the point where you can't just, maybe that's what they're saying because when you, there's some data you can get just by logging in others, you have to um, <clears throat> use two factor authentication to verify that you're wanted yeah. to unlock you're you. this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So Elcom has a history of doing this, right? They they were the guys 10 years ago that were cracking Adobe's encryption on ebooks and they were doing it because they had a um uh a system kind of like Apple's voiceover where it would read aloud an ebook. So they were they were cracking ebook encryption so that people could read ebooks for the um for the non-sighted. So they they have a history of of pursuing these kinds of things. I also want to mention, and, and maybe get you to talk about, Dan, an Apple invention that integrates Siri into iMessage and uh, where, where it aids in peer-to-peer payments. Yeah, I saw the patent for that. It looked like um, the idea was to have a conversation. You're, you're having a conversation with people in I, iMessage, and you can just car- mm-hmm. sort of ask Siri a question directly, or you can just say something that Siri can answer, and it like, pops up and gives you information about things like travel times or other ideas. And that's, we've been hearing a lot of talk about um, virtual assistants and, you know, intelligent assistants where it jumps in and uh, provides you with information, even if you're not necessarily asking for it. It's kind of like volunteers information. Yeah. So the, the patent drawings, because there are always good diagrams with patents, show an iMessage, a group set of iMessages with uh, Brett, Joel, and Siri participating. And so, you know, you ask what's for lunch and, and Brett suggests a place and Joel suggests a place. And you say, I'm already there. It sounds great. How long do you guys get here? And Siri interjects and checks and tells you how far away Joel and Brett are. Right. Which is kind of a neat thing. Yeah, it would require everyone um, to be sharing their location. Or right, right. It would require Brett and Joel to be sharing their location. Um, but we know that, you know, I, I have it set up with, uh, iMessage so that my, my wife can, for example, see where my location is. So she knows where I am and how far I am away. So that's, that's totally possible. Um, other examples. So Siri pulling data directly from an ongoing chat session, like scheduling dinner for participants in an iMessage conversation. Um, the assistant with permission from chat members accesses location data from each member and offers a selection of nearby restaurants as an in-chat poll. So you can vote on time and place and where to go. There's another suggestion that kind of seems more likely to me of you're talking to somebody to set up an appointment and you kind of just ask your calendar basically and Siri is giving information about when you have slots available, that kind of thing. seems like it would be quite useful in a, within a conversation that you're already having. Yeah. So there's there's a uh, a conversation where people say, "Hey, can you guys chip in ten bucks for uh, for Scott's birthday?" And Siri says, um, "Sure, right here. Here's the ways I'd suggest paying using cash, maybe." There's some other, um, you know, a lot of this stuff was kind of predicted, you know, like a long time ago with the is that Newton Navigator or Knowledge Navigator? That was the Knowledge Navigator. And that was like probably what early early nineties or late eighties or something like that. 
It's feeling like 89. Now the processing power might is be so, wrong so much that. tremendously better. Uh, but there's also a lot of things that, like search and indexing, there's a lot of times I search for things that it just doesn't. The Knowledge act. Navigator was nothing. Wow. <laughs> and you're just like, what? <laughs> Come on, I'm, I'm searching for something that should have been right on the top of my pile. And you're giving me all kinds of esoteric, weird results that are totally useless. Um, yeah, Apple's good at a lot of things with design and hardware and, and software layout and design. They're very good at making things look nice. But search, they're still, Google makes that look really easy. Well, they make it look easy, but it's it's clearly yeah, not. Yeah, there's a lot of effort that goes into that. Now, we were talking a second ago about technologies that Apple no longer seems to have interest in. And you named Quartz Composer. Yeah, I think it's been sitting in a holding pattern since like 2011. And what it was, was a, a way to uh, kind of programmatically lay out... Uh, it's kind of visual programming. There's a lot of different things you could do with it, but a lot of what people were using it for was for visualizations and, and you know DJs and doing shows and stuff where you you lay out something where you have basically input from some kind of text thing going into a, a deal where it would overlay text and put it on a on a display and animate it in a certain way. Right. So you'd have these little blocks of program that had inputs and outputs, and you drag wires between them to hook them up to get them to do things it was a very visual way of programming and the sounds when i'm describing it now it sounds kind of like mit scratch but mit scratch is about putting puzzle pieces together and adjusting variables this this was very much about dragging things and wiring them up and it was pretty cool i used to use it for making new um chroma key plugins for for photo booth and for for what was iChat video that's now FaceTime, um, I know people who use it in conjunction with a Facebook project called Origami to actually make iPhone app prototypes that act like they're live. It was a very cool technology, and you're telling me that's been pretty much ignored. Well, it's, it hasn't been updated for a long time. The actual tools, I think they still bundle it with Xcode. Yeah. Um, I haven't right. looked at it in a while, but. Um, it's one of the things that Apple seems to kind of go in a different direction. One of the other things that people were talking about more recently is automation. Some of the automation yeah. tools that, uh, this is what I a, as they have previously been implemented. And I think one of the things that's happening, uh, if you look at all the effort that I was putting into Swift and in building, uh, new Xcode tools, but also kind of building them around Swift, I think we're going to see a lot of modern automation tools and things that kind of take the place of some of the filter programming, visual programming kind of things that we saw with course composer. Well, let's, let's, let's give a little history here. So, so in the beginning <clears throat> there was hypercard, right? And hypercard was way back in the old system seven kind of days where you, you basically programmed by using a, a stack, a deck of cards, Right, and it, you'd you'd create something and then have it click, and that it would show the next result as a card. Right, shuffling the deck basically, and then there was AppleScript, and AppleScript is also dates from those kinds of days, and and AppleScript was the idea that you could use natural language, English language, to program. It turns out that's really hard to do because computers expect rigid syntax, and language kind of lets you avoid using rigid syntax. You can move things around do them all sorts of awkward ways so it was a little difficult to do 
but it was it was certainly useful for a lot of people for a long time. And then they introduced Automator, right? And Automator is cool because you don't have to necessarily know the syntax. You can drag blocks for different programs and different operations into a chain of, of events that will happen when you run some automation. And it will ask for inputs and then give outputs. It's, it's pretty cool. I use it every day, actually. Um, after that happened, they went back and changed AppleScript to not only use the, uh, the AppleScript language, but to also understand JavaScript, which is wonderful if you already knew JavaScript, but that wasn't the point of these things. The point of these technologies, um, especially Automator and AppleScript, was that regular everyday people who were not programmers could learn how to automate their computers and make them more useful and more productive. I think if you take a Venn diagram, though, if you look at who, are, who was using computers in the 90s, yeah. Uh, majority of people who were going out of their way to use a computer had the technical interest and skill in learning how to do this kind of automation things. I mean, not perhaps some small percentage of them. I, you know, I, I, I want to disagree a little bit with that because there are tons of people who've just been using these things to do answer simple questions like, I have a stack of images and I want to turn these stack of images into a stack of sli- individual slides in a keynote presentation. What is the fastest way to do that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a gradient. I mean, it, as things get more and more complicated um, and how much effort it requires to, to do a task, there's some very simple things you can do, just like transferring you know, one file type to another, you know, changing PNGs into, into JPEGs. That's something that a lot of people could do. Um, I, I use Automator daily for take this ginormous image that some PR company has sent me and turn it into something that's 1024 wide and what the other dimensions scale. Right. And if you do a lot of, of common tasks like that, that you're constantly you know changing the size of a picture or, or doing some kind of workflow, then yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It saves a lot of time. Um, I think Apple's, I think a lot of Apple's attention has been so diverted from the fact that you know if they had only ever made Macs. I think they would still be doing the kind of things that that were important to them while they were only making Macs. And they were, you know, at that point, they were selling a million a quarter. Now they're selling something like 5 million Macs a quarter. That's pretty big growth. But in the scheme of things, it's it's a minor business when compared to Macs and iPads. And when you throw an iPhone, it's just like, it almost doesn't matter, the Macintosh, because it's such a it's so much smaller of a business. I mean, a, a lot of Apple's focus right now is in making computers, iPhones, available to virtually everyone and creating a platform where everybody can use this kind of stuff. And that automation is sort of like delegated to apps like, what is the acronym? If then that, then this. <laughs> IFTTT. Yeah. If this, then that. Yeah. So it's, Which is really too limited. You know, you, you, I mean, if it's you're, limited by what it can do. So many of the if this, then that kind of things that I want, I, I really want to have a second and also that step. Right. Or, or a second if this and this, then that. So right? building but that's, that's too complex yeah, for them. Building stronger yeah. workflows requires more um, confidence in the language. And then that kind of pushes you towards using Xcode. And you know, setting up some kind of automator sequence no, or something no, like no, that. No, no, no. There is a vast world of difference between the kinds of things that I'm mean, talking about I doing program from scratch. Xcode. I mean, there's a lot of automation things you can do it using the tools in Xcode. I mean, the automation tools that are there. No, no, no. You don't think so? I, I 
the, the, the examples that I've given, like simple resizing of, of a mass of photos or taking a bunch of photos and creating yeah. individual slides in a presentation from those. I never want to touch Xcode for that. Well, I mean, there's, me? there's different tiers of like complexity of what you're trying to do. No I'm way. talking about if you have some complicated workflow that you want to automate, then that's something that you can start to look at. But um, it's kind of a, a question of how much attention does, do you want Apple to put, focus on this and this and this? And I think the world has shifted so dramatically because Apple went from being a 1 million computers a, a quarter company to being a company that sells 5 million Macs and how many? 7 to 10 million iPads every quarter and 50 to 70 million iPhones a quarter. That changes where the focus is. And also, I think Apple has been very constrained over the last couple of years, in part because they've had pretty intense competition in smartphones. And, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, the Chinese are coming with all these little crap phones. And Samsung well, is, is I mean, there's, the there's fancier, so, so full of innovation, it's literally blowing up in fire. And I think we're getting to the point now where I mean, it's like Apple Le-Echo really is not a small yet. thing, right? Leeco has TVs, Leeco has phones, Leeco has cars that they're working on that actually exist, not not just some far off in the future. But a lot of these companies are effectively exists. startups that are leveraging they're a little bit phony and they're doing they're doing Leeco a whole bunch of stuff with the hope that busy. they're going to make money at some point in the future and they're not making money now. And you can't do that perpetually. As we've seen with the, you know, dot com explosions in the past, you can't just pretend to make money forever. And you see these companies, like everything Google has done outside of search and monetizing ads has just been complete garbage almost entirely across the board. All of the other alphabets haven't gone anywhere. And now they're doing some pretty severe cost cutting. They're doing like Apple 1990s and, cost cutting. And also rolling them back into the greater fold, right? As opposed to being allowed to run individually. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole idea, it's, it's all fun and exciting for media people to report on, you know, far off technology and robots and all this kind of stuff. But it, uh, unless I'm, you're I'm able to make a business out of it, you can't sustain here, it. But, and yeah. a lot of the things with the, this, what I'm saying about the smartphone competition that Apple was facing, a lot of it is getting to the point where those companies are going to pull out of it the same way that, I mean, tablets kind of happened even faster, We've seen this this arc of, of of smartphones coming in and kind of plateauing and and sort of um, failing to grow at, at this point. Uh, tablets happened even faster. They took off faster. They reached this like crazy critical mass where Apple was at one point selling well, twenty five million iPads a quarter for a while or something like that. It was something insane. They were selling tremendous no- numbers of iPads, and then of course it's fallen down to the point where Apple is basically servicing the installed base now. And they're making efforts to sell into enterprise and to other markets and things like that. But um, Apple's tablet sales are have hit this kind of regular level that's much lower than their peak, but it's still you know more than more than the max that they're selling every quarter. Um, that that kind of peak that Apple has experienced has been even um, more roughly experienced by everyone else is making tablets because they never ever made any money. Apple made tremendous amounts of money on tablets and you know they still make billions of dollars on tablets on iPads. Everyone else in the tablet industry, Samsung completely lied about how many tablets they're selling from the beginning. And it, it's you know it's now becoming clear that Samsung probably never ever made any money on tablets. And they're certainly not making any money now. And they don't really have any prospect of making any money in tablets because they don't even know what the point is. Google hasn't made any money on tablets. Microsoft is like 
sort of making money on tablets slash laptops, but at a very small scale. And really nobody else in the, in the Android world has done anything but kept themselves busy making tablets. So if you look at the, the various curves of different products, you know, the Mac has been on sale for 30-something years. iPhones have been on sale for a decade. iPads have been on sale only since 2010. And yet they follow very different courses. And the amount of money that Apple is making from them, the amount of money that they can expect to make in the future, and the amount of money that they have already made, and that the fact that they've already paid off all the development for it, means that at some point, um, Apple's going to reach a point where they've already done all the work. They're far ahead in terms of processor technology and, and a lot of other areas. And they have a, a huge amount of control over supply. And they're just getting to the point where they're finishing their headquarters that they started building in, what, 2007? When did they start planning Campus 2? You know, that was, that's been a huge distraction for the company for years and years and years while they were exploding in terms of sales. They're going to have a whole lot of capacity. And they've bought, I went, I did a tour around Silicon Valley looking at some of these properties that Apple bought. It's kind of incredible how much property they own and how many just huge buildings that they've leased out. I'm like, what are they going to do with all this stuff? Clearly, they have a plan for it. And when they start implementing this stuff, the fact that Apple has been so competitive as a relatively small company, all they've been making is things that are extremely profitable, while everyone else in the Valley is making a whole lot of stuff that's not profitable at all with the hope of someday getting, you know, getting to the point where there's some profit holding up behind what they're doing. Apple is like building this company where everything they do makes money. And a couple of things that they've done that doesn't, you know, haven't really worked out, like things like iAd, they sloughed off real quick. And now they're delegating it away to somebody else who's good at selling ads. Apple didn't ever care about selling ads. They didn't really like to anyway. But what they are good at, I mean, what they're, really, they're really strong at focusing what they're good at. And so when you look at things like Automator and things like that, that's kind of focused on a small group of people within the Mac platform that have really specialized needs. And that's something that I think a third party um, would be, it, it's one of those kind of challenging things because it's like, that's something that a smaller team would be better at doing. But at the same time, it's also something that uh, the executive committee of Apple kind of needs to have part of, they need to have it on their plate in, in terms of, being part of the design of OS 10 going forward, Mac OS going forward. It's the same thing with, you know, we were talking previously about uh, high-end Macs and high-end MacBook Pros. And why isn't Apple making like big, thick laptops that are powerhouses? And if they're not going to make it, why don't they let somebody else make it? You know, the Mac Pro, they're, clearly Apple doesn't care that much about desktop computers because they don't sell that many. But why don't they delegate it to somebody else? Why don't they have some sort of licensing agreement where they sort of delegate that to a smaller company that does these kind of things, there's pros to that and there's cons to that. Because that, you know, as we've seen with Windows and with Android, it's there's difficulty in just having a wide open platform. And yeah, at the same time, I think Apple could make that work on a, on a small scale by instead of licensing out macOS, by franchising it, you know, basically saying, here's what we want you to build. And here's, you know, here's enough for you to do on your own that you can take a cut of profit off this machine as well, but here's what it has to be to be called a Mac. I think that's a, an option going forward, but I don't know if that's something Apple's going to do. So, yeah. Well, so I just wanted to, while well, we're on the topic of, of technology being discontinued, so Sal Sogayan is the, uh, he has been pretty much the, the product manager of automation technologies at Apple for a long, long time. Um, and, and he announced that he is leaving Apple 
uh, and and is going to be available for new opportunities. He, he said, I joined Apple in January of 1997, almost 20 years ago, because of my profound belief that the power of the computer should reside in the hands of the one using it. That creator remains truth to this day. Recently, I was informed that my position as product manager of automation technologies was eliminated for business reasons. Consequently, I'm no longer employed by Apple Incorporated, but I still believe my credo to be as true today as ever. And he worked on, on gosh, so many things, right? He worked on the Unix CLI, so Shell, Python, Ruby, Perl, system services, Apple Events, JavaScript, AppleScript, AppleScript Objective-C, Scripting Bridge, Automator, Apple Configurator, um, scripting support in photos, iWork, Finder, Mail, pretty much everything. He had a presentation at WWC this summer that um, I went to, and it was actually kind of interesting because it clarified a couple of things for me. One is that Siri and advanced dictation are completely separate on the Mac. They're like completely separate technologies. Yeah, well, I, I kind of thought they were. Um, yeah, but they're even more separate than I thought. And uh, he, he, I, I think they're completely One of the distinct. things he was showing off was a package of tools that you could use along with Siri, basically by making uh, Siri listen to, what was it? Using advanced dictation to trigger Siri so that you could start a command and like create a command sequence. And it was sort of like using Siri, but you're basically using Siri to launch something. You're scripting yeah, Siri. So you're launching a script and then you're doing scripted tasks. And it was an interesting uh, combination of, couple things that apple does he's a real character yeah he is <laughs> he, he's a personality if there ever was one and uh i'm i'm kind of sad because it's sort of an end of an era now yeah i mean that too we, we don't know exactly what's happening i mean we don't know what the strategy behind that is either so and it's one of those things where apple is such a black box you don't really know what they're doing in a lot of cases it's like you know everyone's making assumptions about what the car is and you know what apple's doing with automotive and yeah but eliminated for business reasons doesn't sound very friendly right yeah i mean that's what i'm saying but we don't know uh the whole idea behind it we don't know what we don't know which is true. true all right well parting thought dan go ahead and give me a parting thought here parting thought the macbook pro is a very nice machine it's a it's a credible replacement for a macbook air but you got to return that thing, don't you? Instead of just being thin, yeah, I do. <laughs> Are you going to buy one? Yeah, I've been kind of waiting for the machine because, you know, like I said, I mean, my both my Air and my MacBook are both getting pretty old and there's a lot of things they can't do. Um, one of them is you can't unlock with your iWatch or Apple Watch. So I set it up on this machine. It was actually kind of a pain because you have to turn off, you have to turn on two-factor authentication. I had two-step authentication still in place. They They are getting that turned on for a lot of things. They're turning that, requiring that to be turned on for unlocking with the watch. They're requiring that to be turned on for remote access to your home kit accessories. Oh. Well, the, uh, the benefit they're, of they're basically finding ways to push to get really cool. Everyone extremely on. fast. So I set it up to yeah. unlock with your watch, but it still takes a few seconds. So you open it up and it's like a couple seconds of in the process of unlocking with your watch kind of thing. Whereas if you just open it up and touch it, it you're just boom, immediately logged in. And it's really handy for unlocking content. Like um, most obvious example is notes and one password is, is doing that now. So it'd be cool when developers start taking greater advantage of touch ID to do interesting things. And of course the touch bar is a similar example of that and, and like interesting things you can do. Um, I'm particularly interested to see what kind of games will take advantage of it. And uh, 
yeah, it's a super nice machine. It's like super thin and light, crazy light. But at the same time, it's very, very powerful. And we didn't talk a lot about the throughput, but it's interesting that it's uh, achieving speed in ways and productivity in ways that are beyond the typical, we think of speed as basically a fast CPU or maybe a fast GPU. And Apple's not only leveraging the processor chips, but also achieving speed in a lot of ways. Uh, for example, through incredibly fast throughput and new storage, like the SSD that uses the straight up PCI bus to send data around, uses uh, fast bus and fast RAM. And so there's a lot in the architecture that makes it really fast. Cool. Very cool. Well, I, I only hope that you'll be able to push the limits of it when you get one. Yeah, we should say if there's any questions that people have that we can try to answer with the new MacBooks, MacBook Pros. Yeah, people should tweet us if they have questions about that. I've seen some questions that we've tried to incorporate in the review and other articles, but yeah, if you have any questions about what's going on with it. Um, one of the questions somebody had was using it in target mode, target disk mode, which that was always a yeah. feature with uh, Firewire that you could plug in a Mac to another Mac and use, use the other Mac as a hard drive. And you can do that over Thunderbolt 3. But I don't have a Thunder I don't have a second Thunderbolt machine to test it with. And one of the questions was if you have a Thunderbolt drive attached to a MacBook Pro and you put the MacBook Pro into, into target mode, will you see both drives? And the answer should be yes, but we haven't tested it yet. Because that's that's the default behavior of target mode is when you have it in target mode, it shows all the disks as yeah. connected to the host. Yeah, it should. Cool. Well, this is another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 95. And, you know, Dan, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Tell us where people can find you online. Um, writing for Apple Insider, of course. And then also we have stuff on Twitter at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N. And we're also throwing photos up on Instagram at Apple underscore, or no, it's an Apple Insider. Apple Insider official. Underscore official. Cool. Excellent. Well, I'm your host, V Marks, and I'm, I'm at V Marks on Twitter, and I want to thank you for listening. And if you have questions, please, as I say, direct them to Daniel or I on Twitter. And also, if you have positive thoughts you'd like to share, please feel free to leave us reviews on iTunes. This is another perfectly good episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. We'll join you again next week. <laughs>